Good job, brother. Great job. Good. Such a good call to worship, such a good basic reminder of uh, the, the essential truths that uh, create a foundation for us to receive the word of God, the identity of God as a good father, our identity as beloved in him. That is su such a great uh, word. Thanks, Josh and others. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. Our, our ushers will hand one off to you. We're going to be in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, the New Testament begins with four accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. The first is called Matthew, written by one of Jesus' own apostles. So go to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 5, and we'll start there today. Welcome. If you're, if you're new with us today, I hope you feel right at home here. Welcome to Emmaus Church. Uh, my name's Nathan. We're about 10 and a half, almost 11 years old, and uh, I'm just glad that you joined us today. And if you've been a part of us for a long time, then... Um, uh, my prayer, and I'm excited about it, is um, that this will be a really challenging and really uh, life-giving morning for you, that you'll be encouraged as you engage in a rhythm of worship, and that increasingly this will bring clarity and direction and a sense of groundedness to who you are and to your life. All right, so uh, with that brief call to worship, we're going to jump right into the Word, and then our pattern is to spend most of our time together responding to the Word, so that we don't just hear the Word and then exit, um, but we hear the Word and then we wrestle with it for a bit. We give ourselves some space and we give God some room to communicate to us about what this means to us personally. So I've put some thoughts together in my prayers that this will be encouraging to you and also really challenging as it has been to me. All right, one of the challenging, uh, one of the most difficult statements that Jesus makes is the opening line of his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Here's what he said. This is like his salvo. This is his shot um, across the bow. This is his opening statement in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the condition that Jesus says is blessed is poverty of spirit. And the blessing of being poor in spirit, or in other words, the good thing that the poor in spirit get is the kingdom of heaven. So this is huge. This is a super significant statement of Christ. Jesus is talking about who gets the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about this, this reign of God that he's establishing on earth, and he's talking about who it belongs to, and he's talking about who belongs in it, who is going to be part of it. And he says it's the poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit. Apparently, this point, this reality is a really important one to Jesus. This is basically his thesis statement for the rest of Matthew 5 and beyond. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and everything kind of follows from here. Um, this point would have been really surprising to the early and original hearers of Jesus' teaching. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that would have been very surprising to them. It's also very surprising to us. Unless you've just sort of been lulled into a familiar sort of pattern of hearing this and not really thinking about it. This is a surprising statement. Most of us read this statement and we think, what? Because our, our culture doesn't celebrate poverty as a blessing. Our culture doesn't look at blessing and go, oh, what a thing to strive for. Or look at, did I say that right? Let's look at poverty and see that poverty is something to, to, to like go after. And we're not even sure what Jesus means by poor in spirit. What is that? 
And so the typical response to reading this statement is either, I don't agree, or I just, I just don't really get it. I just really get what he's talking about there. Hmm, that's strange. We kind of leave it there. We just kind of leave it there. And what I want to say this morning is that we can't afford to just leave this there. We just can't afford to do that. Because the, the, um, we got to figure out what this means. Because the point that Jesus is making is too important to miss. And the stakes of missing Jesus' point are just way too high. So we can't afford to just go, wow, that's kind of weird Jesus-y talk, and move on to a story that's easier to understand. So for the next few minutes, we're going to dig into this to see if we can get it. Just a glimpse, and that's what I hope to provide, is a glimpse into this blessing that Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're, uh, if you're new with us today, if this is the first time that you've been here, or the first time in a while, welcome. Um, welcome to Emmaus. Welcome to the season of Lent. This is the third Sunday of a, Christian, of a season in the Christian calendar. It's a 40-day season of preparation leading up to the biggest day in Christianity, which is the day of the resurrection of Jesus. You may have heard of it. We call it Easter, right? So the church has historically uh, observed a season that's marked by simplicity and repentance, um, to uh, prepare our hearts to truly celebrate the, the resurrection. And so we're a couple of weeks into that and a couple of weeks into a, a series, a new series on serious change, because that's really what Lent is about. It's a, it's a discipleship tool intended to really shape and form us. So this series is about serious change, and we're calling it Questioning the Questions. And here's what I said when I introduced the series just a couple of weeks ago. I said most of the time we ask questions because we want answers, uh, but we want, and we frankly, especially in our culture, we expect clear, definitive, immediate answers. Another way of saying that is we want easy answers, quick and easy answers, and if it, but you don't get too far into the journey of life before you realize that easy answers to real questions just aren't that common. People will try to sell you on the idea that there are lots of easy answers to your deep, dark, true, core questions. But they're just not that, they're not that common. There are no easy answers, I would argue, to many of the issues that some of you right in this room are deeply struggling with today. Questions about the loss or the illness of a child. There's, you know what, there's just not an easy answer about that. Uh, questions about the loss of a job or the, uh, the unwanted change of a profession. Right? There's just not a lot of easy, quick answers for, for questions like that. Uh, questions about strained marriages or difficulties in relationships. Questions about how to maintain faithfulness to one person over 30, 40, 50 years. There's just not a lot of easy answers to stuff like that. Questions about how to navigate high school. Right? You just can't like, put that in a three-easy-step process. So because answers to our real questions don't come very easily, we tend to stop asking them. We tend to stop asking the real questions, and instead we just start asking sort of shallow, superficial questions. We stop asking the real hard questions. In other words, we want easy answers so badly that we're willing to change our questions, and we stop asking the real questions that are happening here, the hard questions that are happening here, because we can't handle not having answers. We are addicted to them. We really need them, right? It's hard to go through a conversation sometimes without Googling something, because we just want the answer so badly. So, 
what I'm inviting myself and all of you into, at least for a season, this season of Lent, is to pursue fewer answers and more resolutions. Seek fewer answers and more resolutions. What's the difference? Well, answers are transactional, and resolutions are relational. And so you get an answer, and that's the transaction. You get it, and you move on, and you're done. That's an answer. You come to a resolution, and it's something that you live with. So if your question is, what's for dinner? All you need is an answer. Get the answer, you're done, you just move on. But most of the questions that you're really asking this morning are a little deeper than what's for dinner. So you need something deeper than a simple, quick, easy answer. You need a resolution. In other words, you need something to hold on to that will enable you to live with that thing that really is at the core of your real question. So on the surface, we're asking questions like, how do I get rid of this mess? Just give me, come on, just give me three quick steps to get rid of this mess. But really what we're asking is, how can I live in this mess? Because we know you can't get rid of the mess. You can't get rid of the pain that you're experiencing right now. Not like this. Not like this. So you don't need an answer. And I'm so frustrated with so much of the Christian teaching that we accept in our culture. Because it's just, it's just these surface level answers. We need resolutions. We need, we need a spirituality that makes a difference in real life. Do we not? Right? We need a way to like live into the pain. Show me, show me how to be a spiritual person, how to have a relationship with God in a way that actually makes a difference in the way I engage in the pain and the brokenness. I want to like engage in this stuff in a way that doesn't eradicate my peace as soon as one little brick's pulled out of the wall. I'm looking for a resolution. That's what I'm looking for. Not a quick, easy answer, but something that I can live with. So the real question, there's a few real questions, and I'm going to focus on this one today. I think it's a question behind a lot of the questions that we ask. I think it's a true question behind a lot of the surface questions that we ask and kind of hang out with. The question that I want to focus on today is this. What do you need? What do you need? I think that's the question that Jesus' statement about poverty and spirit addresses. Um, so we'll, we'll end up here. Okay? Maybe, maybe the reason that this is the question, maybe the reason we're so quick to dismiss Jesus' statement about poverty and spirit is because it, it actually is about this, and this is hard. So we're going to end up with this question here in a few minutes. I'm going to end here. Um, but, but before I end here, let's go back to Jesus' statement about poverty and spirit. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, two phrases to define quickly. First, the kingdom of heaven. What is that? Jesus is not talking about heaven as we often imagine it, like we're going to go to another place when we die. Um, Jesus is talking about the coming reign of God. It is his primary teaching theme in the Gospels. It's why he has come. He heals somebody. He says, it is the coming of the kingdom of God in your body. He, he casts out a demon. He's like, I've done this by the power of the Spirit so that the king, you can see that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus typically uses the phrase kingdom of God. Matthew is writing this gospel. He's Jewish. Jews don't say the word God out of respect for God. So Matthew just replaces God with heaven. It's the same idea. 
He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's the state in which God reigns. It's the full restoration of God's intended design here on earth. It's what Jesus came to establish. All right. Uh, poor in spirit, a second phrase. The attitude of heart, poverty of spirit, we might say, is, is like the attitude of our heart that enables a person to receive the word and the will of God. It's like the precondition for receiving the word of God and the will of God. And this is the key part, I think. It's the confusing part, so let me lean into it for just a couple more minutes. Um, Old Testament prophets make this unfortunate observation. It is this, that there is a common, a common consequence of acquiring material wealth is people turn away from God. Right? It's not this makes this happen, but the prophets in the Old Testament observe this pattern, this frequent experience. This is pattern that gets repeated over and over again, both in biblical history and in modern history. If you were to scope it out, it might look something like this. Possessions, protection, and power. As soon as a person acquires possessions, they want to protect what they have. And that desire to protect what they have often leads them to want a position of power. Maybe this will help. All through high school, uh, I got this in eighth grade. This is a 1966 Mustang. It took forever to restore it. Forever to restore it. In fact, I only drove it for three months of my senior year. Boy, we're hot. So um, compared to the other cars that I had in high school, this was a nice car. I had a 69 Volkswagen Bug that my Uncle Al helped me fix, and then I had a, a Volvo station wagon that never ran. Um, and so then when I finally got the Mustang finished, it was a relatively nice car. It was a valuable car for me. So and I wanted to protect it because now I had a possession, so I want to protect it. So I wouldn't park it next to the morons that didn't know how to open their doors. I would park it to the ends of the earth at my high school, right? I would go way out on the edge and I'd park it next to all the other kids' cars, the nice ones, right? The cars from the, that belong to the kids or their parents um, that parked all the nice cars out on the edge, right? And occasionally, we'd all have our spots. We all had our spots. You just knew it, all right? And I rolled my Mustang up there and every once in a while, there'd be some lame car there in my spot, <laughs> right? And it would frustrate me, Right? Because I had a possession and now I'm trying to protect it. And so I kind of feel the sense of entitlement or power or control. That's my spot. Right? Don't get, get out of my spot. That's my spot. Right? Essentially, that's, what, that's what's happening here. It's this possessions leading to a desire to protect and then leading to this sense of power, control. Right? I'm reading this great author named Luke Timothy Johnson. And uh, this is what he says about this, about um, this theme that we're talking about. He says, more and more... The prophets saw wealth as a destructive force and turned to the poor of the land as the only hope for maintaining the covenant with Yahweh. The, only po the poor were the only hope for maintaining a real relationship with God. Because why? Because they had nothing to cling to except their trust in God. The prophets proclaimed that the future restoration would be built upon the remnant represented by the poor. 
that the kingdom would belong to them and not to the rich. Don't miss this. This was not, it should be noted, because God did not care for the rich and powerful, but because the powerful and the rich had a way of regarding themselves as self-sufficient and without need for God. The poor of the land, therefore, became almost a technical term in the prophetic literature. It connoted not only an economic state, but a state of the heart. In other words, being poor in spirit wasn't just about needing help. It was also about placing your hope for that help in God. And being rich or having stuff wasn't bad. It's never been bad. It was just that those who became wealthy usually fell into the pattern of becoming self-reliant, often forgot they needed God, frequently placed their hope in their possessions and not in their God. So one of the Old Testament prophets named Zephaniah, he says this. He is looking forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. And he says on that day, he's speaking as the voice of God, and he says, on that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from the city those who rejoice in their pride. What's pride? Self-sufficiency. I got it. God says, I'm going to remove those people as part of my restoration process, not because I don't love those people, but because they're not able to receive what I'm about to do. Never again will you be haughty or cocky on my holy hill, but I will, uh, here it is, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. Why? Because they trust in the name of the Lord, right? So what emerges in in the writings of the Old Testament prophets and what gets stated very clearly by Jesus Christ is this value of spiritual poverty, that you're blessed If you know you need God, because if you don't know that you need God, you're going to put your hope in something else. That's why. It's not favoritism. It's much more nuanced than that. You're blessed if you know because that specific knowledge positions you in such a way that enables you to receive what God's wanting to do in your life. So experiencing realities that we typically avoid at all costs, like hunger or loneliness or poverty or grief or even illness and disappointment. These could be blessings if, in the midst of the experience, we recognize what we really need. Right? It's a hard truth. It's a hard truth, but I think, it's, I think it's biblically right to say that Jesus might look at some of you here this morning who are especially aware of your own neediness, and he might say, you're blessed. You're blessed. Your awareness of your need for me is what makes you blessed, and you're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. You're going to receive the restoration of brokenness that has been my mission from the beginning. Right? You're poor in spirit, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's hard. It's good. 
On the other hand, I have a friend I've known for 25 years, and he has always been that guy who's just had it all. He's always been the guy that's just amazing, that's just had everything, right? He's smart, he's funny, everybody likes him, he's a good guy, he's got a great marriage to a beautiful wife, it's not you, no, he's got great kids, they're healthy, they're, uh, they're, they're successful, his career is solid, uh, he's got this amazing house in a great area, he takes fun vacations, I mean, the dude's got everything, you look at this guy and you're like, he's got it all, he doesn't need anything, he's set, he's, um, he's just got it all. He seems to be totally self-sufficient, and, and he has told me, there's no antagonism, there's no animosity, but he's just told me, just honestly, I, Nate, I just, I just don't need a relationship with God. I know you're always talking about that. I just don't feel like I need that. It doesn't feel like I need it, is what he says to me. He's just being honest, right? Nothing wrong with wealth. But there's this pesky, common consequence of having wealth. Not every time, but it's common, which is that you just don't feel like you need God. So it might be helpful to think of your life as a bucket. Um, let's see, I'm behind on my slides here. That we typically avoid the situations... And there's sometimes the very situations that make us aware of our need for God. Sometimes we ask, how's your life? I want to ask the question, how's your bucket? How's your bucket? Think of your life as a bucket. Think of all the things in your life as the things that fill the bucket. And uh, some of these things are relational things. The, the relationships that matter most to you. Your friends, your family, maybe your spouse. Some of these things are material things. Your car, your home, your, your comforts. Uh, all your stuff, some of the things in your bucket are personal things, like your profession, uh, your accomplishments, your achievements, maybe your successes, maybe even your failures, but the things that really end up shaping your personal sense of who you are. We, friends, we want our buckets to be full. We expect our buckets to be full of what we need. We want our buckets to be full of everything we want. We avoid situations that threaten to take stuff out of our bucket. We will guard our bucket at all costs against those situations more, most of the time. We have become really good, really adept at building our lives in such a way that we have enough control, we have enough power to protect what we possess. We're, we've, we've made that um, like a hallmark of our culture. The problem is that when your bucket is full, there's no room for anything else. And even a bigger problem is this. When your bucket is full, you don't feel like you need anything else. You just don't feel like you need anything else. Because you know what? You got a full bucket, right? You got a full bucket. You're set. You're good to go. And then Jesus does something that almost nobody else, or I would say nobody else really does. He challenges you on what's in your bucket. He actually has the nerve to question whether what's in your bucket is what you need to have in your bucket. He says, is that really what you need? 
And our whole lives are built around protecting our bucket. Our whole lives around, are, 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 are built around like avoiding the things that threaten to turn over our bucket. Because this is our stuff, and it's important, and it's valuable, and I kind of love it. And it's like, don't touch my bucket. I got this, is what we think. I got this. And, and Jesus is like, really? Really? Is that what you need? Just asking. And what he's asked, he's asking that question from a place of love. He's asking that question because he loves us. That's why he's asking. But he's like, really? Because there's this pattern all throughout humanity of people with full buckets really missing what they really need. And then there's, this, there's these other people with empty buckets, these poor people, these lonely people, these grieving people with empty buckets but they know that they're in need and they're placing their hope in God. And so instead of protecting their full buckets, they're like lifting their empty buckets to God. That's what they're doing. And they're looking to God because their hope is not in what's in here. Their hope is in something else. Their hope is in God. And they're saying, would you give me what I need? Would you fill this up? The real question is, what do we need? And that's a question that might mess with, your, with our definition of blessing. It might really mess with what we decide to point at when we say, she's blessed. He's blessed. And so I'm going to ask Josh to play, and, uh, and I just want to invite you to, um, to pray for a minute. Um, maybe you just sit in your chair with your, with your eyes closed. You're welcome to move to the side if you need to get into a, 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 another kind of posture or just have some space if you want to kneel. And I'm just going to ask a few questions, and I just invite you to, to sit with this for a minute. So uh, let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts personally. Uh, what are the situations in your life that are helping you to realize what you need. In, in other words, what are the challenges that are causing you to understand this basic truth that you're a person in need? What are the experiences that you've had in your life that made you call out for help? that helped your heart recognize you need God. And, and now here's the challenging part, because this is the point of surrender. Do you think that you could thank God for those situations? Do you think that you could acknowledge by the grace of God that in a sense, even these challenges are blessings. And I realize that some of the challenges are absolute brokenness. Things have gone wrong. It's not the way it was supposed to go. But could you encourage with the grace of God, thank God for maybe even using these broken situations to help you recognize a critical truth, which is that you need God, and I need God. And could we ask God 
to help us to be poor in spirit and open to receiving the kingdom of heaven in our lives. I pray for grace, Lord, to let go enough to reevaluate the things that we are pursuing, the things that we are protecting, the things that we call blessed. Uh, not to create some sort of easy black and white, this is good, this is bad, but to, to expand our understanding of where the blessing can happen. And I pray that that expansion would begin to include the, the hard parts of our life. And that we would, we would see things that other people see and go, my gosh, that must be terrible. We could say, it is terrible. And it's broken, maybe. But, but there's a blessing here because I'm recognizing a need that nothing else in my culture helps me to see. And that is that I am desperately in need of God. And so, Lord, would you fill us up with grace and courage to embrace you and our need for you. And would we call that blessed? And would we receive restoration that comes to those who are recognizing their need for restoration? Thank you, Lord. Please have mercy, Lord. Help us to lean into poverty of spirit. Help us to lean into it. To lean into recognizing our need for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, bud. Thanks. Good. I want to invite you to stand up with me. We're going to take a short time to welcome one another to church. Uh, this is a communal experience. Christianity is not about the individual, ultimately. Um, we need one another. We need one another to help us recognize the bigger picture. And so let's take a few minutes just to extend peace to one another. We'll come back together for a time of more uh, full response to the word. But for now, may the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Take a minute and greet one another. We'll come back together in a second.